A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Stephen, and on a special episode of the New Statesman podcast, Anoush and I, fresh from Labour Party conference, discuss our impressions of it, and you ask us about May and Corbyn's Euroscepticism. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. We've just got back from uh, being on, well, actually, I was about to say the world's worst delayed train. We actually, I think, on the second of the delayed trains. Um, not even the first one. Not you can't even, even the claim the... But claim we were claim. definitely on the funniest of... <laughs> the delayed trains um, from party conference. So the power went down in something which obviously actually is, is notionally the part of the nationalised railway, but of course it you know, confirms in people's mind the idea that there's a problem with how railways are, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, I will be sad uh, when Jeremy Corbyn gets rid of uh, privatised railways simply because it will presumably bring an end to the world's most brilliant bit of human for theatre, which we had on the... <laughs> yeah. So the... Um, so the so the woman who sounded very nervous when she was announcing our delays um, because she knew that she had a train full of journalists and politicians um, probably. But um, she, earlier in the journey, she had announced all of the different foods and drinks that were available in Carriage C, where the um, train cafe was. And everyone looked, you know, okay, yeah, I'll have something to eat in a, maybe in an hour or so. And then she went, but there is a problem. And everyone's like, what? The problem is that we can only take cash. <laughs> and, and this just had Stephen and I really annoying the people around us by just giggling for the entire trip. I think because she went on for so long that you could... Yeah, I mean, this was a detail. This was a it hard was really sell, right? <laughs> I mean, you could very easily have made your way all the way from first class to that tire in, before she went. But by the way, because it's 2018, none of you can use this. <laughs> Um, they also, uh, when we stopped us at rugby, uh, decided to open the doors and let people go on the platform. Of course, neither of us were stupid enough to fall for that trick because they, of course, did not tell people when the train started moving again. Yeah, people... and then they suddenly started blowing the whistles and there were people coming and <laughs> shouting at the closed doors <laughs> on the platform. <laughs> Which, I mean, I know we shouldn't find funny, but it was just... It, it was, was just, just so predictable. Yeah, it was like, why would you trust this company not to do that? <laughs> Um, so yes, over an hour later than we should be, we're back in the office, and probably all of these stories sound ridiculous to you because we're overtired and <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> overjourneyed. But I think the interesting thing is actually the the thing we we do have in common is um, we're not um, depressed. No, which is often the weird thing I think about covering any party conference is you do um, hugely absorb the mood of the of the conference delegates. 
Yes. Yeah, so, so yeah, I've been going, I don't know how long you've been going, Stephen, but I've been going to most of the conferences each year since 2012 when I first started working in political journalism. And you're so right. Every conference you go to, you just end up being in the mindset of the of the delegates that are there because you soak up the sort of groupthink. Um, and I've only ever really been that happy coming away from, from, from Lib Dem conference because they're all so friendly. But this year, I'm upbeat after the Labour conference, so that must tell you something yeah. about the mood there. Well, actually, the one where I was upbeat after, other than the Lib Dems, where they're mostly just, you know, very cheery, very happy to have seen one another, um, is, uh, weirdly, Tory party conference in 2014, when, you know, when it was quite a flat, dull conference, and then Cameron, like, unexpectedly gave just a really good speech, you know, just really well oh, delivered. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, you know, like that. the last hope, the last chance. It was one of those things where but it was sufficiently good and they were sufficiently into it that, like, briefly by the end for about 10 minutes, I was like, yeah, I hope we smash them, smash the Lib Dem, smash Labour. And then after about 10 minutes, I was like, wait, what? Like, yeah, yeah. What just happened there? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, so obviously... Uh, Conference delegates were having a good time. Uh, there was um, not quite a... I actually think in an odd way it had more of a party atmosphere than last year because everyone was so tired last year. Yeah, yeah. because last year you'd think it would be the most sort of euphoric Labour conference for the past three years. But actually, yeah, there was... And there was also a sense last year that the main conference was slightly hollowed out by the festival that goes alongside Labour Conference these days called The World Transformed, which is the momentum-created um, uh, fringe. And I felt like that sort of took away slightly from the, from the main conference, which it doesn't anymore. Yeah, it's odd because that really ought to be the reverse because... Mm. Obviously, in Brighton, uh, the conference venue and the and the World Transforms big set piece events were actually closer together. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas the World Transformed was spread across a large chunk of Liverpool, and the uh, the conference venue is itself on the docks. But somehow, it didn't feel like it had um, drained all of the energy from the main event. So, I mean, you basically did the, you know, the kind of fringes, mm. uh, and I did the sort of conference floor and the wrangling on it. So, what was your kind of impression from my impression was well pretty much what i just said i think the um the fringe that well the momentum fringe has started working with the conference quite well so they're kind of complementing each other um they were saying that anecdotally they thought that there were more people who had labor conference um sort of lanyards going to these events and they also had people like ed miliband speaking and obviously lots of the shadow cabinet speaking and some of their events felt like real go-to sort of fixtures for more traditional um, political journalists to go and cover. Whereas in the first year, they they felt the problem was that political journalists would go and cover these events just to make fun of them or to try and nick a news line about anti-Semitism. And, you know, we had events this year at the World Transformer called things like decolonizing yoga and, and origami for peace and that kind of thing. But none of that got the sort of sniggering that it that it would have had in the past. Mm. Instead, people were going to go going to go and watch these events where they had really interesting speakers. They also had a lot of international speakers uh, like Mélenchon and um, people from the uh, Democratic Socialists um, in uh, the US that drew big crowds. So can I there have was a, a lot brief of wine about JLM's? Yeah, of presence. course you can. Yeah, and George has done a very good interview uh, with JLM, and there is a very plausible chance that he could uh, become France's next president if uh, things. Uh, all the right way for him but to me at least it does kind of feel like burke banners should not 
be invited to labor affiliated events uh it was it was weird and strange when a bunch of people on the labor right went manuel val's great guy and it's just like let me tell you a thing or two about <laughs> um and it's even more weird because at least people hadn't really heard of manuel val's most <laughs> of those people were not aware of some of the views they were endorsing yeah uh, i i yeah i just do kind of feel like particularly because it's not as if right from a radical left perspective it is not the english left which needs to invite people from outside to go here are my thoughts on how to be a successful movement so mm. it's 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 incongruous for for many many reasons and also yeah Burke Banner shouldn't be invited to Labour conference. Okay, okay, yeah. So there should have been some no platforming then. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, but I think one of the effects of this this um, this conference meant that you had a little bit of of uh, the same kind of cultural exchange happening on the flip side. So you had more. I don't know whether you noticed, but you have more sort of momentum figures, people who are high up in the organisation at the main conference, um, and coming to some of the sort of more traditional social events at conference like our party and the mirror usually has a party on the last night and there were people going to that too so i think there's been some swap over as people discover the yeah i mean it really felt like so the last time we were at liverpool for labor conference would have been 2016 yeah uh immediately after that second leadership election and the party you know emotionally drained but weirdly the kind of old party establishment still very dominant you know in terms of yeah. their physical presence yeah this i think really did bring home the fact that it is uh corbyn's party now his hegemony is is near uh well as, as total i think as the labor leaders can ever be institutionally because obviously there are many constitutional uh powers granted to the trade unions councils mps themselves all of which slightly limit the power even of a a, a very strong labor leader but it is essentially uh his party now and it yeah. did very vividly bring that home in a way that 2017's conference still had enough of the old sort of establishment in positions of of influence that yeah it hadn't quite uh yeah and i think that to me, I guess, would be yeah. Kind of, if we were doing take homes from conference, that would be one. Definitely, um, and I think that it that's proved by the fact that the the division, if you wanted to find divisions at this conference, was not between the people who you'd call moderates and the Corbynites. It was between the left wing groups on Brexit, um, and so that sort of suggests how how the left is the is now the institution is now an institution, you know, um, because the divisions were among them rather than between you know yeah i uh, yeah i think you their rights and whoever's yeah it definitely um you know most of the kind of big divides you know kind of the things that actually animated people you know the level of selections what's the unique role of trade unions in that yeah uh, effectively a debate being played out on the left of the labor party in which the the labor right or the center left or moderates or whatever uh, language you want to use were essentially wholly peripheral figures yeah um I think in an interest, there's an interesting uh, dimension to the. I think some of those rows didn't get written up in the way they perhaps will in the future because you still have a large chunk of uh, the kind of political lobby who 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 view the the Labour Party's divides through its kind of pre 2017 lens. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, those divides are still existent, but um, I guess it would be a bit like covering. New Labour in 1994 and going, oh, but of course Jeremy Corbyn doesn't like this this Labour policy. Well, that just doesn't. That's not as that is just 
irrelevant, really. Yeah, exactly. Um, they are the minority group. They are the eccentric fringe. Uh, yeah, so it is a kind of complete uh, transformation on on those. The other thing is, of course, the policy platform, I think, this year has caught up with the rhetoric, right? The, mm. the weirdness is in 2017, the 2015-2017 manifesto is the interesting obverse, right? In 2015, there's lots of radical stuff in Ed's manifesto, but the overall tone is, well, don't worry, guys, I'm, I'm a serious... I'm not going to do anything too wild. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about it. I've got that big preamble about how, you know, fiscally conservative I am. <laughs> you, you can trust old Ed. The 2017 manifesto is basically the 2015 manifesto with some nationalizations. But instead of having the I'm really sane, it's the I'm radical me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, and, and, you know, the, the big shift is is tonal. Now, of course, as far as moving voters, the tone actually matters a lot more. I, you know, the average person does not uh, pay attention to the warp and weft of policy. Mm. But now the warp and weft of policy has moved as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is kind of very much the same ethos as the message of 2017. But the policy platform is 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 now uh, significantly more radical. Yeah, was. definitely. And I, I was at a, a fringe event last night where John McDonnell spoke and it was it was a rally um, on the fringe. And he was saying that um, this year they're doing the manifesto, but but that it's a radicalized you know, version of that. So they're actually doing that consciously and saying that's what they're doing. But I think that that's what they're saying to their their audience, who are their members, who they want to, they keep saying that they want their membership to sustain them through power. If if, if Labour ever gets into government, they're sort of entreating their followers to stick with them just in case, I think, just in case they need to make compromises, which of course they will have to. But I think some of the things that they're saying about their policies are almost trying to... Um, make them sound like they're not they're not that radical behind the scenes. So I, you know, I heard a front bencher refer to John McDonnell as now a um, as now a neoliberal uh, sellout because basically his policy with the workers' dividends policy is more like a sort of bonuses for all rather than a bash the business um, type angle. Um, and so I, and and the same with Jeremy Corbyn's speech as well. Um, this the the green jobs revolution that he came up with. Um, is a pitch to those uh, leave voting constituencies um, which have been industrialised but haven't had anything to replace that work. So I do think there's kind of a conservative pitch as well. Yeah, I mean, so the kind of the, the strategic uh, choice that this conference uh, that has been made by the Labour Party is to pitch for uh, leave voters. So lots of the... So I, lots of the panels I, I was on, you know, you'd either have a question or the explicit topic was, um, you know, what seats are you going to win? And obviously all of the MPs would go, well, we should win every seat. Our values are universal, et cetera, et cetera, which of course the MP kind of has to say. Um, but when you actually look at where they're putting the ball tactically, they've clearly decided, you know, then the thing that they can bolt on to their 2017 coalition are people who voted to leave, who either did not vote in 2017 or voted for the Conservatives, who they can pull over with a kind of... Uh, because it's very kind of radical policy, very, you know, kind of very sepia filter uh, mm. kind of tone that they've got going on. Um, I mean, in some ways, I kind of think the uh, the other sort of weird thing about this conference was the determination of a lot of people, activists, members, Corbynites, shadow cabinet ministers, Corbyn skeptics, shadow journalists. Yeah, I think three of the things I was invited on to, you know, do TV punditry on mm. one of the questions were, you know, oh, have we seen Pete Corbyn, which is particularly surreal because obviously we are about to go off to Birmingham where we know that there is this big kind of meteor of dynamite heading towards 
uh, the UK, which the Conservatives may or may not successfully divert. And it just feels so strange to have people going like, well, let's discuss how the next election will pan out. Yeah. Just, I mean, we, 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 we know that this big, huge, politically climate-changing event is going to happen. And until it happens, it just feels slightly redundant almost because we just don't know how that's going to how they're going to get out of that particular mess. Yeah, no, I don't, and, and that was the problem last year as well. I do remember speaking to um, sort of Corbyn allies in the shadow uh, front bench um, during the election and afterwards who were basically saying, well, we this manifesto, we can't, we won't, you know, it's not really real because we don't know what we're going to be able to do after Brexit. So although you get these really interesting policy offers that have come out of Labour conference, and of course it's signalled the way that they want to go and they're sort of walking the walk of their radical talk, you don't know whether they're actually ever going to be able to do any of it. In fact, you know, I mean, it's unlikely that, that they will. Well, that I, this, this is the slightly odd thing about all uh, politics at the moment, because I think it feels that there's, so, you know, the kind of central prediction of, of most people in politics, which I think is, to be honest, actually just people's optimism talking rather than uh, than any kind of actual, is then, you know, there'll be some kind of fudge and we'll end up with a kind of not real Brexit Brexit. Mm. Well, in that case, there will be, I think, some quite uh, restrictive strictures on state aid, various bits of economic uh, radicalism than, than they might otherwise do out, out with the single market. So that changes things in quite a big deal, quite a big way. And also the structural reasons why it's becoming harder to win parliamentary majorities for either side will not be changed by that type of Brexit. Obviously, if you have a kind of catastrophic Brexit, then I think suddenly all of the kind of, you know, Pete Corbyn has, you know, how does Labour win over seats in this part of the country or that part of the country will become redundant because uh, bluntly, if there are riots over avocados then the the opposition wins uh wins a big majority i think regardless of circumstances but again if the uh, government inherits riots over avocados then their domestic priority will be getting to stop people punching each other over avocados <laughs> uh and so yeah it does Smashed have this avocado yeah it does have this kind of slightly weird thing that uh effectively yeah we all know that the conservative party is going to do something but we don't know what um the thing i want to ask you is the other um we talked a little bit about brexit and of course the weird way that um yeah despite the fact that economically the labor party has changed in terms of who runs it the labor party has changed the thing which hasn't changed is the use of conference as a cudgel for the members to go we want coffee mm-hmm. <laughs> i think what you want is for Jeremy Corbyn to be able to order a drink. Maybe it'll be water. Maybe it'll be tea. <laughs> Could even be coffee. We're not ruling out coffee. And it's just, that is weirdly the one bit which hasn't changed. But the kind of interesting thing that happened uh, in the speech was a, a kind of a softening of Labour's language about the final deal, you know, an indication that they could vote it down. In the in the spirit, then we should never end this without saying at least one thing which ages horrendously badly. Um do you think that that is actually a big change in Labour's Brexit position? Um, no, well, I don't, um, because I think that these six tests that they want the, the government's Brexit deal to pass were designed so that Labour can justify not not voting it through. Um, and also, Labour is the opposition. It is going to have... To, I know that it, it hasn't opposed previous Brexit votes in the past, but it is going to have to vote down this deal, and I don't think that that's been... I don't think that's been a realistic shift in, in their outlook what do you think yeah i mean in the slightly bad for radio because i completely agree with that i think um 
yeah, the six tests have always been a way to kind of put a gloss on going, oh, we're the opposition, we're going to make your life difficult. Um, now, actually, the odd thing is, is I think that there is, to my, this slightly surprised me, but this is something that, yeah, having sat in on a couple of focus groups and gone and think I've kind of gone, it's like, well, look, what do you think Labour's position on Brexit is now? Yeah. And in almost every time I've asked, I've got, a kind of like you stupid kind of facial expression back and they and they've gone well they're the opposition their policy is to be difficult uh and i think slightly to my surprise a people you know despite the fact that you know all of all of us kind of you know most of the kind of sort of the the kind of you know the the, the consensus discourse um kind of is, oh you know people are you know that labor's policy is ambiguous uh, weirdly, I think there is much more. There's much more uh, expectation than people think that the opposition will just find an excuse to be difficult. Mm, uh, okay. Yeah, and and they will, of course, vote it down. Yeah, of course. I mean, I can't see any situation where they wouldn't. They'd have um, to be bonkers. I mean, yeah. what, what, what would be the? What is the incentive, right? Because the what the partly, of course, they they'll do it for lack of any other options, because it's the one thing which unify, will unify the Labour Party. Isn't her deal is bad. Whether you're a Brexiteer or a, or a Remainer mm. in the Labour Party, you will think her deal is bad. But I also just cannot work out why it would ever be in the interest of the Labour Party to dip its hands in the blood, does it? Work? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Like they have, you know, it has never, it, you, you just cannot come up with a plausible reason why it's in Labour's interest to be a co-architect of, of Brexit. Yeah. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. And this question is from Henry Mendoza. So, obviously, a great deal of uh, coverage of uh, the Labour Party's position on Brexit goes through the lens of Jeremy Corbyn's historic Euroscepticism. Of course, Theresa May is also historic, uh, historically uh, dabbled in Eurosceptic ideas. So why, you know, like, why do people not consider uh, Theresa May's uh, historic Euroscepticism to be as uh, relevant? I think the main reason is because people like to focus on Jeremy Corbyn's Euroscepticism because they think it makes him look like a hypocrite, even though they're wrong. So my main reason for saying this is because people looked in very simplistic terms at the new membership of the Labour Party and and their majority, they were a majority pro-Remain. Then they looked at Jeremy Corbyn and they wanted to sort of undermine um, his connection with his own membership by saying, oh, but look, he disagrees with you on Europe. So that's why I think lots of people focused on that as if it was some kind of news or some kind of revelation, even though that's been his position for decades. Um, I remember I interviewed his brother once, Piers Corbyn, and one of the lines in the interview that got the most pick up was that he said that, um, he, you know, he remembered all of the ways that him and Jeremy agreed on on Europe, which was to be against it. 
it, um, which was I was quite surprised by because I thought that if you cared about Jeremy Corbyn or if you knew a lot about politics, then you would know that that was, of course, his position. So basically, I do think that that focus on his Eurosceptic history is basically as a stick to beat him with and, and to try and disappoint or disillusion his his supporters. Yeah, I think because, yeah, the problem that Corbyn sceptics have at the moment is they, they see a membership where they have this 60-40 at the absolute outside, probably due to differential, uh, you know, people leaving and people yeah. joining. Probably actually now if you... Um, not if you re, if you not if you reran that election now, but imagine that everyone who's currently in the Labour Party had been around to vote in the Corbyn versus Smith. It'd probably be more like eighty twenty, yeah, yeah, uh, because of, of Corbyn skeptics leaving. And so people, it is partly I think when people look at the European thing and they go, okay, well this is the one, yeah, what is the one thing about me that is closest to the members? It's this, yeah, uh, and it does I think create some slightly confused commentary of what I think of as the why doesn't Corbyn have the courage of my convictions <laughs> yeah. uh, genre. Whereas just like, well, because you don't, he doesn't share your political aims. Um, I guess there, so I actually think in some ways, I think the, so mostly, of course, when we get asked questions like this, I go, the problem is that the, the Labour Party has a reasonable bar to clear and the Conservatives have no bar. This is um, actually one of the examples where I actually think that it's really tempting to see Labour's Brexit position to the perspective of the thing about Jeremy Corbyn, which is unusual for a Labour leader, which is that he is Eurosceptical. However, actually, that's not really that relevant to Labour's Brexit position. Uh, it would be identical under Yvette Cooper or Andy Burnham. It could potentially be different if Liz Kendall had won, you know, a, a thumping landslide, but if she had won narrowly and had to reach an accommodation uh, with her opponents, it, it would be the same. So it's 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 not that different. And actually... Uh, the thing about him that matters on Europe is the thing about him which is most like every Labour leader, with the exceptions uh, of of Tony Blair in one direction and Michael Foote in the other, which is that Europe is not an issue worth losing votes over. And then, yeah, and effectively the position which allows them to, you know, you know, use no political capital and hopefully to discomfort the government is the position they will uh, take. And the reason why we don't cover Theresa May's historic Euroscepticism is, I mean, I, to be honest, kind of think actually her Euroscepticism is only interesting if you are partly seeking to explain the 2016 result, which is that she is one of a wave of Tories for whom going, oh, yeah, I'm not into Europe, me, was just like a way of showing that you were sound. Yeah, just for their association. Yeah, yeah. and that, that sort of background cultural hum of, of, of sort of anti-Europeanism, I think, was a huge factor in the referendum and a huge uh, sort of cultural tide that has got to be turned back if we are going to uh, reverse uh, Brexit at some point. And, in, and at the moment, just no one has really started to even think about what turning that, that tanker looks like. Mm. Um, but we don't cover Theresa May's reception because people rightly know that it has naffle to do with the Brexit position she takes. Uh, it is mildly interesting if you're talking about Theresa May's thought. Uh, and in lots of ways, I actually think Jeremy Corbyn's Euroscepticism is like that. Mm. It, it is not uh, integral to him in the way that, um, you know, it's not like, say, you cannot explain uh, the decisions Jeremy Corbyn has taken and the associations he has made in Labour's anti-Semitism route if you do not understand the centrality of uh, Israel-Palestine to his politics. Yeah. Whereas, actually, understanding his, Euroskept his Euroscepticism is not central to his European politics or indeed his politics in general. So... The answer is neither of them.
should be given any coverage. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague Anusha Kellyan. It's recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you've enjoyed this New Statesman podcast, please do subscribe. If you haven't, remember that we are very tired. Uh, <laughs> and any criticism may well make us cry. So don't get in touch on Twitter or Facebook to do so. Anyway, we'll be back next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.